is alive, it is so relevant, and, and it is life-giving and life-changing. It influences, and it is infinite in its depth and in its wisdom. And to uh, give an account someday for my handling of it before you is a very weighty and sometimes painful thought. The story that we're examining together this morning is a continuation of what we talked about last week. It's Jesus being at this banquet, and he turns the tables, literally, on the banquet. And uh, Jesus, as the invited guest, uh, turns the trap that the Pharisees had set for him on them and takes this as an opportunity to teach them some very important things and us. So I kind of want to imagine today that we're sitting around those tables, too, kind of just as observers listening to what Christ has said, and let's begin by hearing the word of God together. Luke 14. One Sabbath, as he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away, and he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest uh, someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring into the poor, excuse me, bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of God. It's not Aesop's fable. It's not Mark Twain. It's not a folksy yarn. It's the word of God with huge implications for everyone, for children, for teenagers, for all of us, not just those of us who believe that we're saved or know that we're saved, but there is a message here for everybody. This is an awkward meal. This is a tense situation. 
Can you, can you kind of sense it? Jesus is invited, just to review a little bit of what we talked about last week. Jesus is invited by the Pharisee after Sabbath meal. Typical that, like, when we invite people over to our homes or to a restaurant after, after a, a Lord's Day service. But the whole intention was to trap him with the dropsy man. They brought that guy there thinking Jesus will heal him and then will spin on him because we know he's going to heal his people because Jesus loves everybody and, and he's going to heal this guy, so then we'll have him. I mean, think of the idiocy of that. Once he heals this guy from this fatal disease, then we'll trap this loser. This is how ignorant these individuals are, how darkened their hearts are. Yet when Jesus comes, he heals the guy and silences them, right? They can't even respond because he's so wise in asking that question, well, should I heal him or not? If they say yes then their traditions fall apart. If they say no, they look like the losers that they are because they don't care about this guy who is fatally uh, diseased. By this time in the meal, after Jesus heals this person, then he speaks to the person, the people who are there, hey, I noticed when you guys came in, this is a paraphrase, this is the AJB version, uh, I noticed when you guys came in that you all sought the best seats. You shouldn't do that when you go to a party. Because what happens if you're sitting at the best seat and someone more important comes in and you'll have to, you'll have to be excused. Someone, someone will say, hey, this guy's more important. You go sit at the very far end of the table and then you'll be embarrassed as you walk to the lowest. No, sit at the low table. And people are like, then he turns. We didn't get to this part yet, but we're going to kind of summarize it. He turns to the host and says, and I got something for you too, pal. Now, Jesus didn't say it that way, but it is, it is that tense. I think we should read that intensity into the situation. He, he heals the guy. He speaks to the people who are invited. Now he says, hey, you shouldn't just invite your best buddies to come because then they'll just reciprocate. It's not enough to be civil with people. You should be charitable with people. You should invite people that couldn't invite you back. Of what good is it when we just love other people who love us but be good to those who will never be able to repay you? And in that way, you'll have rewards, he says, at the resurrection. And it's at this point that basically Jesus has offended everybody in the room. And, and not because he's in the wrong. He's not wrong. He's just pointing out all of these errors. And remember, the Pharisees are sitting in Sabbath saying, we got Dropsy Dan ready, and it's going to be a trap when Jesus comes, and their, their meal is just shredded by the Lord. And so then you've got this guy in verse 15. His name is not mentioned, I wish it was, so we could give him a little nickname. And he is going to attempt to break the uh, awkwardness of the situation. And it's almost as if you can imagine him raising a glass and making a toast. Hey, 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 blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Like he's just kind of saying, hey, 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 enough of this... Uh, shredding of all of us let we're all gonna be in the kingdom right blessed is every it's that's the situation and then jesus proceeds to rip into this guy or at least correct his thinking referring to the marriage supper of the lamb or the great feast that is going to be awaiting all of those who are followers of god which we will celebrate in the presence of god in his kingdom is what this man is referring to this guy, it's like when you're in an awkward situation and someone has just said something and it's dead silent and you just kind of blurt something out because you just want to kind of change the subject. This guy's hoping that that statement will do just that. But in it, he is exposing his own arrogance because by saying that, he's assuming 
that everybody in the room is going to be there. Hey, you know what? I know we sought the best seats, and I know you're invited everybody else. But hey, we'll see you in that kingdom. Blessed are all of us who will be there. That's basically what he is saying. I want to turn to a couple of passages to explain this feast a little bit. And I'm going to say some things today that may be uh, hard for us to accept. I believe these things with all my heart, and I want to say them lovingly and kindly. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. Usually we just land in Luke and we stay there, but let me show you two passages that reveal this uh, heavenly feast because it was predicted in the Old Testament and because we say, well, how does this guy who's kind of making this toast, at least that's what it seems like to me. I know probably he's not necessarily doing that, but he's kind of interjecting this statement of blessing. What, what's he talking about? How does he know there is going to be a great feast? Remember, these are Pharisees, and he's invited other Pharisees. These are people who knew the Old, Tis- Old Testament scriptures very well. And in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, there is a prediction of this feast. Uh, Let me read a couple of verses for you out of Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all nations. Well, what is this that he will swallow up? He will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold this is our god we have waited for him that he might save us this is the lord we have waited for him Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What other book does this sound like? Where do we read this type of language? Revelation, no question. Revelation chapter 19. That's the other passage I would like you to read. I want to show you the two places. Now that's how the guy knew about it at the dinner. Because it was predicted in Isaiah 26. And in Isaiah, in Revelation, or excuse me, Isaiah 25. And in Revelation 19, it's actually prophesied about as well. Revelation 19, verse 9, and a couple verses following. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, Bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It sounds very similar to what the guy says in the middle of the Sabbath meal, doesn't it? It was predicted in Isaiah 26. Who was it predicted to? Who are these people that are gathered in Isaiah 26 that are saying, this is our God, we have waited for him. Who are those people? Starts with the J. These are Jewish people. That's why the guy raises his glass. Because not only are, I'm, I'm, he didn't raise his glass in the scripture, that's why I'm kind of standing over here, but that's why he makes this statement. Blessed are those who are being the kingdom of God, and we are blessed because we are Jews, and besides that, we are religious Jews, 
and we will see you there. We're going to be there. All this awkward talk that Jesus is making right now, I know this is a little intense, but hey, blessed are those of us who will be in the kingdom. Go back now to Luke uh, 14. Let's see how Jesus responds to him. Jesus is correcting. Jesus is instructing. And perhaps this man is hoping to find some common ground with Jesus. Stop arguing and let's start agreeing, the man is thinking. But rather than agreeing, Jesus tells one of his most memorable parables. Most of the people in this Sabbath gathering believed that only Jews would be invited, and this man is congratulating them, almost like saying, we'll see you in the air, you know, pass the bread, uh, let's get on with this supper here, because it's just prefiguring all that we're going to enjoy in the kingdom. Let us note this once again, that the most scorching statements that Jesus makes in the scriptures are not to quote-unquote sinners, they are to the moral, religious hypocrites. These are the people that Jesus had no stomach for. The insincere, pretentious, religious people. He demonstrates great patience and kindness to those who admit their need for grace, but to those who do not think that they need it, he, he rejects them. This is, predict this is uh, stated for us in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes. You want God to oppose you? Then be proud, because that's who God opposes. Now, here's how the outline will go today. There's an invitation, there's excuses, then it's filled up, then they're left out. Okay, invitation, number one, excuses, filled up, left out. Let's, uh, let's jump into this text here and start talking about it. Great story. I know you're familiar with it, and hopefully we'll point out some things that will just encourage you. The invitation. Okay, the invitation is given in verse 16 and 17, and actually, if you read it very carefully, there are two invitations that are given. You see that in verse 16 and 17. Uh, in 16, it's, uh, and this is after the guy gives his little statement, and they say, hey, a man once had a great banquet and invited many, okay, and then the time for the banquet came, and he said, now it's time to come. So there are two invitations. There are two separate invitations. He invites many, and then he prepares the, 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 the feast, and then he goes back to them and says to the ones who were already invited, okay, now it's ready, come. You see those two invitations. This is a critical part of the story. There are two separate invitations, and this was customary in that culture. A man who was hosting a great banquet would send out the first invitation, which would almost necessitate or guarantee a yes. I mean, this was, to go to a luxury feast like this would be something that you would not turn down. So when that first invitation came, yes, 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 yes. It's almost like I got the guest list now. I'm going to go prepare. And then when the lambs are killed and the food is prepared and everything is ready, then I'm going to go back to those people who were invited and already said they would come, follow so far, to say, now you come. Those are the invitations. So this is what is pictured. The man in the parable is, okay, we're, gonna, we're trying to do the symbolism now. This is where you answer. The man in the parable is, well, or God, it's, it's the I believe it's the Father, but it could be Christ. It's, in, in, in any case, it's God giving a great feast, which is symbolic of the fellowship and joy and satisfaction that comes in this relationship with him, and it also symbolizes the, the future feast to come. But it's, 
it's not, I, I don't think the primary thing is, you know, the ribs and the chicken and that. The primary thing is we're gathered in the presence of God and fellowshipping with him. We have joy and we are ultimately satisfied. And he is giving this feast for other people as a demonstration of his grace. Okay? So the first invitation goes out and it is gone out to the Jews. And it has gone out to them through the promises of the Old Testament. Think about the parable. When was this first invitation given? It was given from Genesis 3.15 all throughout the Old Testament in the promises that a Savior was coming. And remember that these promises were primarily given to Jewish people. Now, there were pockets of Gentile people that were saved. Ruth, Rahab, Ninevites. There, there's pockets of people. But generally, it was to the Jews. And this is written for us in Ephesians chapter 2. You're familiar with this verse. We studied it very in depth a couple years ago on Sunday night when it mentions these phrases about Gentile people in verse 12. You are separated from God. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, with David. These are Jewish covenants. These are not Gentile covenants. There is no hope for Gentiles. They are without God. They are far off. And maybe this is a reason why Joe in the Sabbath lunch says, blessed are us because we're going to make it to the feast because we are Jews. That's almost what he's saying. In John 5, verse 39, Jesus says that the Old Testament, quote, bore witness of him. In Matthew 15, 24, he says this, I was sent to, quote, the lost sheep of Israel. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are what made him wise unto salvation. The Old Testament is the, is the prediction and the promise that a Savior is coming. The invitation in Isaiah 55 is given to come and drink freely of and have bread without price and be satisfied the messiah will come isaiah 53 as god's suffering servants to bear away our sins and make the possibility of this feast a reality so invitation number one is given throughout all of the old testament and these jews who are gathered at that sabbath feast knew all about the invitation and they had basically already said we're coming are you found this so far? When, when that guy comes, we're all in. And now he's sitting right with them. And now he's saying, the second invitation, if you look back at the parable, everything is ready. Everything is ready. Remember when he comes? The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Repent. He is about to make the way through the veil that is his flesh, Hebrews tells us, so that all can come to God. Everything is ready. What a wonderful invitation. He will complete the work that has been promised in the Old Testament. And when salvation is performed, the invitation is given. And the question then becomes, now think about this with me. The invitation has been given in, in the Old Testament 
And now everything has been made ready. Christ is ready to perform all of those promises. He is ready to do all those things. God has prepared him this body to fulfill all that has been predicted. Everything is now ready. And the question that is to be asked of everyone is, do you want to come to this feast? Do you want to come? The question is on their willingness to respond to the invitation. Okay, the invitation is being given. Will you come? I want to tell you two things that I believe very, very strongly, and I will hold to these things till the day I die regarding the invitation and who can come and who will come first. Let's talk through these things. I believe that God has sovereignly elected those to be saved before the foundation of the world in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And the reason God must do this is because all human beings are spiritually dead and cannot respond. They cannot respond to spiritual truth. Those in here who are spiritually dead cannot respond to spiritual truth unless God first makes them alive so then they can respond. They cannot come. We cannot come. I could not come. It's not as though I was sitting in that church down at First Baptist Romeo and the pastor is speaking about hell and I said, you know what, I think that's a great idea because I am spiritually dead. All of my salvation is credited to the grace of God. We can't sing things like, he will hold me fast, grace greater than our sin, and then at the same time kind of congratulate ourselves because we were wise enough to come to the decision to finally follow after Christ without any divine intervention at all. God is the one who intervened in my sin-dead soul and revived me so I could respond to the truth. So when the invitation was given, do you want to come, I said yes because God chose me. I believe that with all my heart. But I also believe this. And now you're going to say, you are illogical. You're going to be like Spock. That is very illogical, Pastor. Uh, anyone, I believe this secondly, anyone who is unwilling to respond to that invitation has only themselves to blame. Okay? You see why that sounds illogical? Well, if God didn't choose me, then it's not my fault. That's not what Scripture teaches. I believe what the Bible says. God is not at fault. And God sends no one to hell. It is the rebellious, unwilling sinner who sends themselves to hell. Logically, it makes no sense, but I'm not talking logically. I'm talking biblically. Ephesians 1, 4, X, uh, 13, 48. All kinds of scriptures, the word elect is used as an adjective to describe God's called out people. It's used as a verb to describe what God says. If I uh, handed out a platter of candy to each one today, and you, I said, you may pick one, you are making a choice. That is the exact word that the Bible uses to select out from. And again, we, say, we, we might say things like, that's not fair. I want to tell you right now, you do not want God to be fair with you. For God to be fair damns everyone to hell. I mean, if I, if I raise my hand and say, God, that's not fair. I mean, none of us deserve God's grace. 
We don't want his fairness. We want his mercy. We want his mercy. The reason people reside in hell today, and the reason why maybe some in this auditorium will reside in hell in the future, and perhaps many in this community will reside in hell in the future, is because of their unwillingness to respond to the invitation. Well, God didn't choose me. Get over that. You know, I've given the gospel out here for 10 years, and you know that I say at the end of the gospel message, will you accept this? I don't say hey, anybody in here elect? Uh, I'll talk to you afterwards. You know, I don't go door to door in Romeo summer after summer and just look for elect people. I tell anyone who will listen, will you receive this wonderful invitation of God's grace to forgive your sins? And will you receive it today? Because if you don't, you could end up in eternity separated from him forever. We just read it in our statement of faith this morning. It is their unwillingness to respond to the gospel that condemns them to hell. This is proven through a theological term called concurrence. Concurrence is the idea that God does everything and brings about all things according to his own will and uses even the choices of human beings to accomplish that will. And I'll explain it to you through two uh, very critical Bible illustrations. Okay? I believe that God ordains evil, that God has ordained, in a sense, sin. That does not mean he is responsible for sin or to be blamed for sin. In other words, when God created all things and Lucifer rises up and says, you know what, I think I'd like to be God for a while. Why does he, why does he get to be God? God didn't all of a sudden, oh, what am I going to do? I did not foresee this. I mean... The rebel this is this is at the core of men and women's rebellion is I reject a God who can do whatever he wants. I reject a God who has ultimate sovereignty and ultimate authority because I want to be the ultimate authority. So when Lucifer did that, it was all in the plan of God. He's not to be blamed for it, but he did ordain it. Think about these two old these, these two stories. In the Old Testament. Joseph's brothers envied him, hated him, lied about him to their father, pretending that he had been slaughtered by a beast, uh, sold him into slavery, continued this facade with their father for years and years, and they are responsible for those sinful choices. Yet when they come to Egypt at the end of the uh, book of Genesis, because of the famine that is happening, and they come to Joseph, Joseph says, you did evil, but God meant this for good. Were the boys responsible for their decisions? How did God get Joseph to Egypt? He used and maybe even ordained, in a sense, these men choices to bring about his purpose. That is a minor illustration compared to the greater one. What is the most evil, most wicked act in all of human history? What is it? The crucifixion of our Lord. The innocent Lamb of God taken and slaughtered by wicked men. Is Judas to be blamed for this? This isn't a hard question. Is Judas to be blamed for this? No question. Is Pilate? Yes. Herod? Yes. Soldiers? Of course. But who is the one who brought this about? 
Right? Was there any question when Christ came to the earth that he was going to go to the cross? No, because God had already planned all this. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. It says something like this. It's a paraphrase. God delivered him up, and you by wicked hands have taken him. Well, Judas can't say, well, I never had a choice. Right? God had planned all this, and I was going to be the one to betray him. When the moment the ca- that came, the soldiers came and says, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. You tell us where that guy is. Did Judas have a choice? No question. He did. And he's responsible for it. And he's burning in hell today because of it. Not because God and his sovereignty, but because of his rebellion and unwillingness. That's the idea of concurrence in the Bible. That somehow God brings about all things according to his will, using human choices to do so. I can't explain it beyond that. I'm glad I can't because then I would be seated in the throne of God. But I worship a God whose ways are higher than my ways. And I am not like, it, it, it's like when, when I, if I were to make a Lego set and then put it together and the Legos would say, why did you make me a car? I would have much preferred to be a boat. I say, you're Legos. I, I can do whatever I want with you. I am the creator. And in Romans 9, Paul uses that illustration where he says, what it, does the clay say to the potter? Hey, why did you make me like this? The potter can make a pot for a dishonorable use. The pot, potter can make a pot for honorable use because he is the one who is in control. And basically, at the end of Romans 9, he says, just shut your mouth before God. So I say all that to this, to ask this, and to say this about the invitation. The, you are being invited. All of you are being invited. The Lord invites you. Will you come? It is all on you. You are invited right now to repent of your sin, to receive the salvation that Christ has made ready. And if you do not, you will go to hell because of your own unwillingness to repent, because you are too proud to admit you need Jesus. Second, let's talk about the excuses that are made. So the invitation goes out. And now the people start making excuses. I mean, again, this would be a high honor to be invited to something like this. This part of the story actually seems absurd, like Jesus is making a joke with no punchline. Remember in a sense that all the people sitting around that table have already agreed to come, but now are sending their regrets when Christ comes, and it doesn't appear to be the party they thought it was going to be. Three excuses. Number one, I have bought a field and I must go look at it. Number two, I bought five oxen. I must go see them. Number three, I'm married and I cannot come. This is where it kind of starts to sound like a joke. You're offered a luxury feast and you're not going for these reasons. Now it is true that someone in those days might buy a piece of property and it wouldn't be finalized until a final inspection would be made, but who, who is going to buy a field without first looking at it? Who is going to buy oxen without first trying them out? Even the marriage excuse is weak. You think the wife wouldn't have been invited to come along as well? I'm trying to put it in a way <clears throat> maybe that we can understand it so we can get to the heart of why these people are making these excuses. Um, uh, <laughs> I hesitate to say this. I'm not saying this just because I'm using this as an illustration. Take it at that. So Saturday's my birthday. What if somebody came to me and said, hey, Andy, I got a couple of Red Wings tickets and uh, a coupon to Giordano's Pizza. Want to go to Detroit with us Saturday afternoon? Um, you know, 
I, I'd really like to, but I just bought five used cars, and I got to go see if they run. It makes no sense. Uh, these, we've had a lot of snow days, and so a couple of times, uh, Britt and I have turned on this game show in the morning that we we've never seen, you know, and it's this uh, where they see the curtains and they got to decide if they want the trips or if they want to exchange it for a donkey or whatever, and and uh, we always are cheering that they get a donkey, and and uh, it, it reveals trip to Iceland, and everybody cheers and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, that's the weekend I'm straightening my garage. I mean, you, people just don't respond that way. When people make excuses like that, what are they really saying? They're really saying, I just don't want to be a part of it. I just don't want that. Something else is more important to me. The point of the excuses that are made to the Lord are not that they could not come, but that they didn't want to. They just didn't want to. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about why do people go to hell? It, they go to hell because of their own unwillingness to respond. Think about it. Many of you, many of you girls and, and, and kids, teens, you've been sitting in church now for a couple years, and I give the gospel a lot. And here's another invitation to you. you. The invitation is going out, and if you don't respond, it's because of your unwillingness. Some adults have been sitting in here for years and heard the gospel week after week. The reason you will go to hell is because you were unwilling to respond. It is always only the unwillingness in our hearts that keep us from responding. Why is there this great opportunity and so few people are responding to it? Why is it? They don't want to. Right? They just don't want it. They want something else more. And the two primary things they want more are possessions and relationships. Those are the two things. And interestingly enough, we're coming to a sweet section in Luke. I mean, just great stories. We're going to come to the rich young ruler who wouldn't come to Christ because of his possessions. In fact, next week, it talks about hating our family in comparison to loving Christ. Both these possessions and relationships, which are distractions, will soon be dealt with in Luke's gospel that keep people from responding. Think of the simple things that kept these people from coming to Jesus. A field, an ox, a wife. And think of the foolish objections that arise in your hearts when you think about not wanting to come. I'm talking to a person in an evangelistic way over the last couple of months, and I think I've expressed this to you, well, will I have to start coming to church? You know, and, and the idea is, like an hour's worth of time is keeping a person from coming, or a change in their particular lifestyle. Oh, it is so foolish. The luxury feast awaits, and we make these wild excuses. Third, filled up. I just urge you to respond. I'm trying to, I'm trying to say it in several different ways, but I just urge you to respond. So in verse 21 to 23 of the passage, the servant comes back and explains to the master what these people are saying, and he becomes enraged. Well, will the feast fail? Right, the preparation has been made. Think about it. In the, in the Old Testament, all of the, uh, the first invitation is going out to the Jews, and now it's ready, and no one is coming. Think about John chapter 1. Um, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Right? His own received him, they didn't want him. So will the feast fail? 
will the man of the house say, look, I've prepared all this and, and no one's coming. He's going to go out and make sure it is filled up. And this is where the gospel, praise God, comes to the Gentiles. I mean, this is, it's almost like, thank you, Jews, for rejecting the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. Praise God for that. The feast has been prepared and people will come. And this, of course, is symbolic of the Jewish rejection and the gospel invitation getting wider and wider. And now he is going to invite the unworthy, the afflicted. And just as he mentioned earlier, he's going to invite those who could never repay his kindness. Because the guy who's raising his glass at the toast and says, blessed are those who are going to be in the kingdom, is thinking, I deserve to be there. And we who are afflicted and unworthy know that when we are in the kingdom, it is not my worth is not in what I own. We just sang it. But it's in the cross. I rejoice in Jesus, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I rejoice in him. I don't want any other. My satisfaction is him alone. We're not going to get to heaven and pat each other on the back and say what a great job we did in getting there. All of our attention we focus on the Lord and his magnificent grace he has invited those who could never repay. His invitation does not come to the moral religious insiders, but to the poor, bankrupt outsiders. And this is the type of Christian charity that we must express to others and reflect the grace of God by being friends with and inviting the wicked, the forgotten, the undeserving and unworthy in our eyes. And we must, as the scripture says here at the end of the parable, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Now, at the end of verse 23, there is no explanation of what happens there. Do you see that? He says, hey, go out and invite all these other people, the, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And we, he says, we did that. We'll go invite others and compel them to go into my house. And there is no verse 23b where it says, and they did that and a lot of people responded. Because that hasn't happened yet. When Jesus said this, it's going to start happening on the day of Pentecost and throughout the church age, when we go out, and who are we supposed to go out and invite? The crippled, the lame, the bankrupt, the blind, these people that, that need Christ. Not, it's like, let's stop wasting our time with moral, religious people who think they have no need of Christ and start focusing on these down-and-outers, these ones we think are undeserving of the gospel, and go out and compel them. It means to force to grab, it's like to convince them by persuasion. They're almost going to be like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't really love people like me. Yes, he does, yes, he does, yes, he does. And he's inviting you to this wonderful feast. Will you come? And so many times we as Christians have no time for those dirty, wicked sinners. We'd much rather have a family of five that carries their Bibles and looks like us come into the church instead of the hurting and hopeless and what we believe to be perverted, unworthy people. Well, what were we before Christ? For crying out loud. Who is going to be inviting these outcasts? It is the merciful God of grace who does that. These are the people Christ came to save. And God's heart's desire, verse 23, is that his house be filled. Second Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The message that Grace Baptist has and must always proclaim to everyone, especially to those we think are unworthy, is God is gracious and wants you to come to his table 
Will you come? You are invited. And then it's on them. Then it's on them. We're not doing much inviting. We've got to do a better job at that. Fourth, left out. We've got to finish. We've got to finish. So the table is filled up. Can you imagine? I mean, if you thought the table Sabbath feast was awkward before Jesus started this parable, I mean, what's it like now? These guys aren't dimwits. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Basically saying, you guys don't want any part of me. Because that's exactly what you're going to get. And instead, we'll go invite Dropsy Dan. And I'll go invite Bent Over Betty. And I'll go invite Gentiles. <gasps> Those dogs. I'll invite women. Sinful women. Who've been married five times. I'll invite tax collectors. The silence at the table must have been palpable. The one who had just toasted their own presence at the feast find themselves excluded from the joyful fellowship. Remember, in whatever version of Scrooge you like to watch or read, I can't remember which ghost it is, takes him to the Cratchit house where they're having a celebration. And there's joy and there's fellowship. And even though there's trouble, there's everybody's happy with each other. And Scrooge is looking in the window, an outsider excluded from that joy. That's, that's in some small sense the picture of those who are apart from this wonderful relationship that we enjoy with Christ. They have been invited once through the Law and the Prophets. They've been invited twice the actual presence of Christ. I mean, think about that. These individuals are seated with Christ at a feast. And by his grace, he is lovingly inviting them to come and they are still rejecting him. And in fact, not only just rejecting him, they are going to be the ones that kill him. But they preferred things and their relationships over the Lord. They, in fact, toasted themselves, acting as if they wanted to be in the kingdom when they longed for this kingdom. Follow what I'm saying? The guy is almost like saying, blessed are all of us who will be in the kingdom. When in reality, his heart didn't even want that kingdom. His heart wanted this kingdom. His heart wanted the praise of men and the authority that came from his position. They really longed for the comfort and adulation of this world while they pretended to want the other one. And is it possible that you all a moment ago sang, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God praise than when we first begun, and you don't really even want that. You are much more comfortable here. Like we said about compartmentalizing in Sunday school this morning. Like, this is good from 10.30 to about noon, but the rest of my life is mine. Then you don't even really want the kingdom. And it's that hypocrisy that will leave you on the outside looking in. And it's not just that you're on the outside looking in at some frosted window, sad that you can't be a part of it. You will actually be tortured for your sins for all of eternity separated. What did we read in the, in the uh, statement of faith? It fits so well. It's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery. You don't just go into the ground to be eaten by maggots and, and act as if you're sleeping for the rest of eternity. You miss out on it all. And you'll be raised from that grave at the end of millennium to the final judgment, cast in the lake of fire. Here's sad words. Not to be annihilated. They'll wish for that. You'll wish for that. 
Just put me out of my misery. Like we do for animals that are suffering. You will beg for that. And instead you will have nothing to look forward to but an eternity of being separated from the presence of God. And this will be finally and firmly fixed. And yet the invitation goes out right now. And we just say, I just got more important things. And I might be embarrassed if someone knows I'm not a Christian. Can you imagine the moronic attitude that that is? Constantly, Jesus confronted false religious professors and urged them to respond with true repentance. So I ask you today, will you finally abandon everything, turn your backs on the things of this world, and embrace the invitation of our blood-stained Savior? And if not, verse 24, you will never taste of the banquet. And the line that judges say when they condemn a prisoner to death, May God have mercy on your soul. We'll have no valid worth in your life. You know, it, it, we, we think about that when people commit this horrible crime and we're, you're condemned to death, and may God have mercy on your soul. That cannot even be said because the time to receive his mercy is now. It's not sometime in the future. God help us all. Let's pray. Father, how happy we are to be invited and how grateful we are for the grace of God which reached into our lives and brought us the mercy and grace for our salvation. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for my sins. Oh God, I'm such an unworthy recipient of your grace. Look forward to spending eternity praising you for your forgiveness of my sins. And I would ask, Father, for each one of us that we would do two things. First, respond to the invitation if that's necessary. God, if there's somebody in here who needs Christ, may they not be deceived. May they be convinced finally, firmly today, once and for all, to respond to that invitation and receive your grace and escape. And then secondly, Lord, take this gospel message to others before it is too late. You've given us such a weighty responsibility to just go tell people how they can be saved, to tell them they're invited. May we never look at one person in this world and believe they are unworthy or undeserving of the gospel. May we go out in the highways and hedges and, and compel people not to come to church primarily, but to respond to the invitation of Christ. They might feast on his banquet, be satisfied fully and finally, and, and receive the joy and blessing that comes from having their sins forgiven. God, it is, it is our heart's desire that this church be filled with people like that. And you have given us the responsibility of taking this good news to this community, and may we not shirk that responsibility, but perform it as you've commanded us to do, and please give us fruit for our labor. Please, even in this congregation, let there be one today respond to the gospel, and in the weeks to come, please, may there be a harvest of souls that repent of their sins and trust Christ. May this be a day that changed someone's life, God. I pray that, that the word of God would take root in their hearts and they would, they would respond in the right way to what we've shared today. Above all, we are so thankful for Jesus. 
just overwhelmed at his love and his kindness to us. We're thankful that even though we've sinned against this week and sinned with the knowledge that we're saved, we've been we found forgiveness still. But please, please remind us of these great truths as we leave this place. And give the one who is unsaved today no rest until they find their rest in Christ. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Great section of Luke with a lot of uh, just fascinating teaching and stories from our Lord. And I hope you'll be here every week leading up to Easter as we, as we review those together. In Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Jesus is described as the brightness of his glory, the express image of God's person, the sustainer of all things. Uh, in John 1, he's referred to as the creator of all things, the life, the light of men. Jesus today, sadly, is seen more as a, uh, is just a gentle, meek uh, individual who can kind of be reckoned with as casually as our UPS driver. Uh, someone who we can just um, think about when we want to or uh, you know, devote a few minutes of each day or maybe just on Sundays to him. And thankful that he has certainly rescued us from the flames of hell. I mean, thank you, Jesus, for that. But having no interest or desire to have him invade the rest of our lives. I'm talking to all of us. I mean, who is Jesus Christ other than the eternal Son of God, the Savior of the world, exalted and seen, seated at the right hand of God? What is he worthy of? Between 10.30 and 11.45, and it better be 11.45, that's what he's worthy of. Uh, he certainly, you know, when I am in a fix or I am in a pickle, he better hear my prayers and get me out of it. Or if something good happens, I may give him assent. But certainly he is not to be a part of every one of my decisions. Uh, that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus makes it really hard to be his follower. And American Christianity, specifically in the 1900s, has made it really easy to where connecting with Jesus is done so more for cultural appropriateness than anything else. Uh, maybe for some sort of advancement or some sort of networking, we, we join churches or add Christ to our life. When in fact Jesus makes it very clear in many, many places in the scripture and maybe no more clear than it is here in Luke 14 is what he expects and demands. So let's look at what he says here and then I trust explain it to you in an accurate way that comes to bear on each of our hearts. Luke 14 verse 25, Jesus has concluded his supper with uh, the Sabbath supper with the Pharisees who had attempted to trap him and now he is speaking instead of to them to the crowds who have accompanied him and I'm imagining some of the crowds and some of the, his followers are saying, if this is not the way to a relationship with you, right? If this outward religion and pretense is not the way, then what is the way? And he starts expressing it to them. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Anybody ever had a CB in their car? I mean, this is years ago. People would have CBs, you know. Got your ears on, people would say. You know, I guess they used to say that. I, I don't know that I've ever said that before, but I just did. Got your ears on. And you have to say it in that country twang, right? Nick, give it to us, would you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> or maybe your teacher used to say to you, hey, it's time to put on your listening ears. Remember teachers saying that? You always kind of wonder what. Put your thinking cap on and your listening ears on. The point of those things is it's, it's time to pay attention. Some, and that's what Jesus is saying here. It's time to pay attention. There is something very critical here. What, what can we listen to and apply? And the, the wrong thing for you to do would be say, what, is, what does Andy have to say to us today? I don't have anything to say. Uh, all I'm doing is relaying to you what the Lord has said. And the things that he has to say here are very, very critical. Who can be his disciple? A disciple is simply a person who is a follower or uh, a learner. He's not talking about the 12. Like, you know, if you want to be my, usually when we think of disciple, we think of the, there's 12 disciples. But he's talking about, does anyone want to be rightly related to me, a follower of me as a teacher? That's what disciple means. Um, it's, it really would be equivalent to us saying, who would like to be saved? Who would like to be a Christian? Again, I, I would like to get away from the term Christian. Christian is not a term that Jesus ever uh, applied to his followers. It was a name that enemies applied to his followers. And especially in our American culture, to say we are a Christian does not really differentiate us from anywhere else because it is so culturally appropriate. I'm not saying don't say you're a Christian because you're embarrassed to say the name of Christ. I'm saying it, it does not clarify what we really are. Because when we say we are a Christian, almost everyone else would say, well, I am too. And there may be other terms that would be more appropriate. You never want to say, I am a Baptist, although we are that by conviction. Uh, we want to say something like, well, I follow Jesus Christ. I am his disciple. Uh, we mentioned before that Paul always used to say he's a member of the way. And that's a term that's used often. But a disciple is a great term. And Jesus says it three times, my disciple, my disciple, my disciple. It implies that he has possession or ownership over the people that are coming to him. So what Jesus is really inviting the crowds who are following him to do is to be rightly related to him. This is really an invitation to be saved. Do you want to know how to be saved? Jesus is about to express it to us. That's why we say, 
put your listening ears on. There is nothing more important than, than understanding what it means to be saved. Now, there is no one passage in the Bible that we can go to that provides the formula for us to be saved. Like It's not like when you make Rice Krispie treats, you cut off the back of the box, and you have everything you need there to make the Rice Krispie treats. You cannot go to a specific passage in the Bible and say, well, if you just say these specific words, you will be a follower of Christ. In fact, you've got to take a compilation of the Scriptures, all that is taught and said, and put it all together to make the right conclusion. Meeting with an unbeliever, as I am doing every week uh, since January, is a very eye-opening experience. And it's one that we all ought to be invested in, sharing the gospel regularly. We, we must take the whole of Scripture, put it together, and explain what is meant. As I was meeting with this person this week, who's reading a gospel with me, this person said to me, uh, Andy, I was reading this uh, section, and I was very confused about it, and he was talking about this verse, Matthew 5, verse 20, which says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And the confusion came because it certainly appears like the Pharisees will go to heaven. You can understand how an unbeliever might misconstrue that point. Well, I've got, it sounds like what's being applied there is good works, like uh, my good works. We know that Scripture teaches in that passage and in many others, that we must be righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven. We must be righteous to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Righteous simply means, starts with a P, perfect. you got to be totally perfect. Your life has to be totally aligned with everything that Christ has said. All of his commands must be perfectly followed, not just in action, but in words and thoughts and even in motives. So if you are righteous you can have a relationship with God. And everyone in here goes, oh no. Because we know what's true by our own experience, but we also know what is true by the word of the scriptures in Romans 3.10. No one is righteous, not even one. There is not one person who has aligned themselves perfectly. So now we throw up our hands and say, well, what are we to do? We go to that Matthew 5 passage and I explain it this way. Well, certainly from the outward, it looks like those Pharisees are doing everything right. And for us to look at that person, well, we say, if they have no chance, I certainly have no chance. Especially as we read in Isaiah when it says, all our righteous works are as filthy rags. This is super depressing news for anyone who has their listening ears on. For anyone who is hearing this, says, I don't have righteousness, and righteousness is the only way to enter in the kingdom of God. What must I do to get it? We go to a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the greatest passages in the scripture, but says, but he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's this wonderful transaction that takes place when we repent, where our sins are placed on Christ and his righteousness is given to us. So now, even though I am not righteous in my practice, I am righteous in my position before Christ. So God, as the judge, brings down the gavel and says, not only does he say, not guilty, he says, perfectly righteous. Praise God for that. I mean, that's the only way it happens. That is required to, to enter into a relationship with God, yet it is not enough to simply be cognizant of certain truths. Because I can meet with unbelievers, and so can you, and there may be some in here who are self-deceived about them, their own selves being saved, who acknowledge those truths. 
who will say things like, I am a sinner. I thank Jesus that he died on the cross for me, that he rose again, and I believe it is by faith that I am going to be saved and will enter into heaven. People can say that and still be lost. People can acknowledge truth mentally and agree with something and still not be connected to it. So what is required? Belief, repentance, trust, what is it? Let me summarize it by saying these two things are needed. First, there are some facts to be embraced, but there is an attitude to be expected. Okay, Those two things are necessary. Facts must be embraced, but there is an attitude that is expected. Many of us perhaps stop with just the facts. There are objective things to believe. We must believe that we are a sinner. We must believe that we do not have righteousness. We must believe that the only way to obtain it is through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. We must believe that since he lived a perfect life, he could go to the cross and face the wrath of God and bear our sins for us. That if we believe that and repent of our sins, turn from them both in mind and in emotion and with our will, that we will have this righteousness to be saved. That's part of it. But there also are some subjective things that must be lived out. There is an attitude that is expected. Now, what is Jesus describing in the section of Scripture that we just read? Is he describing facts or is he describing an attitude? It's an easy question. What is he describing? An attitude. This is the attitude by which you must embrace those facts in order to be saved. You know, there's nothing in the, Jesus doesn't say anything in the passage about his own death, about the resurrection. He doesn't say anything about belief or faith or repentance. Those things are found elsewhere in the scripture, which I just explained to you. So what he is explaining here now is he is cautioning the crowd against just agreeing to facts and he's warning them that there is a cost involved in this relationship. Notice the phrase three times. This is, this is the title of the message because it's the key to the passage. Verse 26, cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, cannot be my disciple. In other words, this attitude must be expressed otherwise you are excluded from a relationship with Christ, doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter if you say, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Doesn't matter. According to Jesus, if you don't have these attitudes, you are excluded. I had an interesting thought. I don't think I've, I've started to recently, but I have kind of bought into the culture of American Christianity as well. And I don't believe for a long time I ever said something like, now you know, if you don't do this, you really can't be saved. Almost like you're putting up hurdles for people. Because for most of American Christianity, it's like, hey, you want to believe these facts? You want to go to heaven? Man, you don't want to burn in hell forever. Believe these facts. Pray this prayer. To the point where uh, the great American evangelists of years gone by have made it very, quote, easy to believe in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a great debate about this in the uh, seminaries of America about what it takes to be saved. 
Is it simply an agreement of facts? And someone wrote a book. I have it in my office right here because I was required reading for me in college because this debate was just coming out in the early 90s. A person even wrote a book that said, it is possible for a person to agree to these facts and then later in life totally repudiate that they ever believed it, and yet they still believe that person is a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is the culture that we have grown up in. Some of you have grown up in, in, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, this very easy belief, just as I am without one plea, will you come, will you come? And it doesn't matter what the attitude is as long as these facts are organized in your head. And we as a church must never do that. We, we must do as Christ did and throw up these barriers and these warnings and caution people to deliberate about this decision because it's not something, Dave prayed it earlier, and I, I, wasn't, I didn't ask him to, but it, it came to his mind. We said, we don't just add on Jesus, just kind of add him to what we're already doing, right? Because a lot of people can be moved emotionally because especially if they've lost someone or they're thinking about their own mortality or they're an emotional person and they want to, enjoy heaven and avoid hell, they'll do whatever you say. And it'd be great to put it on the rolls. 14 people got saved at Grace Baptist this week, you know, because they agreed to certain facts. So often what we do as believers is we assume others are saved because they profess faith, or we accept others as saved because of their professed faith. We might even assume we are saved based on a professed faith. We might accept ourselves as being saved based on a professed faith. But rather than assume or accept, what Christ is saying here is this is how you assess whether or not you are truly saved. This effect this type of preaching that I just expressed or this type of evangelizing, this gospel message has done nothing but water down the church and left millions in a state of deception where they think they're going to heaven because they shook a pastor's hand or he wrote a note in their Bible or they have a card from some church or some pastor put them in the water. But their life shows nothing in regards to having Christ be involved in it at all. This threefold warning that Christ gives, you cannot be my disciple, uh, applies to all of us as well. These are threats that stand in the way that keep us from being a true follower of Jesus Christ. Would you agree that this is something that is urgent for us to consider? I mean, this is, this is a powerful thing to think about. I don't want to cast doubt on anybody who truly is saved. But I want to caution you from thinking that you are saved simply because you believe certain things. And I want to caution you from thinking other people are saved because they believe certain things. I can tell you that individuals I've met with since starting this church, they're not attending this church, but they were unbelievers, individuals in the community. Uh, if I said their names, some of you would know them. I, I saw one of them uh, standing on the street and had a conversation with them this week. And this person made a profession of faith, made, made a statement of, oh, I believe these facts. And, and the worst thing we can do is just kind of stamp Christian on their forehead. Everything's good because you did this certain action. So I don't want you to doubt your salvation if you're truly saved. But I want you to stop looking at a prayer or, a, or a, a thing you did to give you that confidence. Here's what Christ says keeps us from being a true follower of Christ. Relationships comforts and possessions and as we look at all three of those in the passage 
the theme that overrides all of these is that Jesus must take the preeminence over all of them. See, the three times he says, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be disciple. The first time he says, you can't be if relationships are more important than me. The second time he says, you can't be if your comforts are more important than me. And the third time he says, you can't be if your possessions are more important than me. What Christ is saying is, if you want to be my disciple, I must have the preeminence. That word is used in Colossians 1.18, that in everything he might be preeminent. And again, I uh, appreciate uh, what was said this morning about looking at a, a word in, in the Bible dictionary. It gives a great definition. It means that this preeminent means he must hold the highest rank. He must be in a category all by himself. In other words, for the Christian, for the disciple, the true disciple, there's Jesus and then there's everything and everybody else. That is the attitude we come to Christ with. Not just believing certain facts, but giving Jesus the preeminence over our relationships, over our comforts, and over our possessions. And unless a person is willing to do that, to give Christ the priority above all things and all people in their lives, they can't be his Disciple. Doesn't Jesus use strong words today that we don't hear in churches at all? Can you imagine? I mean, we, we would like, for, I, I would just love for there to be 300 people in the crowd today to hear this message. And then what they would be hearing is, like, you can't, you can't, you can't. Uh, and, and what is a result of that is many will not adhere to this type of commitment. Many want that easy commitment. And so they'll attend a church with that easy type of commitment to Christ because a message like this actually drives people away. It did when Christ preached the message. People just scattered. They did not want to hear this. They did not want to give themselves to that kind of commitment. Jesus' preeminence expresses itself above these three things. Let's walk through them together. Verse number 26 is the first one, and it's in regards to our relationships. He said, if anyone comes to me, and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even himself, he can't be my disciples. So besides believing all the facts that we're talking about, right? we must still acknowledge those facts and embrace those facts about salvation. But if we want to embrace those facts, you say, yeah, someone raised their hand and said, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to believe that stuff. I want to go to heaven. I want to have a relationship with Christ. I want to, I want to buy into that. Then they also must be told, well, listen, uh, besides believing those things, Jesus says, you must hate your family. You must hate your wife. Hate your kids. Hate your parents. Hate your spouse. Now we know, of course, in light of all the scripture, Jesus isn't talking about an emotional hate here because in other places he tells us to honor our parents, love our wives, and even in Luke 6 he says, love your enemies and pray for them. So he isn't talking about actual hating. What is he talking about? You probably have heard it rightly said that we must love Christ so much that it appears that all of our earthly relationships seem like hatred. But what does that really look like, right? Well, you love Christ so much, it looks like you hate your wife. I don't think anybody's ever said that to me. What does that really mean? We are not talking, when you read this, when you, when you read that Jesus is saying you've got to hate people, what you have to do is eliminate emotion. Jesus is not talking about an emotion, 
he's talking about preference. Who is it that you give preference to? Who is the one who takes priority in your life? It can't be parents, it can't be spouse, it can't be kids. It has to be him if you want to come to him. He has to have the preference. In another place, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money because you'll hate one and love the other. It doesn't mean that in doing so, by loving one, you actually come to hate the other. It's, it's that one is going to be treated a different way than the other. It's going to take precedent over the other. Okay? You can have ice cream or you can have pie. Well, I, because I choose one doesn't mean I hate the other, but I am treating the one with preference. I have preferred the one over the other, and that's the way to in, interpret this. Who is it that we prefer above all? Are we willing to please our parents above Christ? Are we willing to idolize our children above Christ? Are we willing to please our spouse above Christ? Let me give you some examples of that in a minute. One of the problems for us living in, as I said, American Christianity is, is we have lived in a culture where we have been so blessed that it has been culturally appropriate to relate ourselves to Christ. Where Muslims or Asians who want to give themselves to Christ find themselves disowned, disinherited, disregarded, and often, in the Muslim world, sought to be put to death for their coming unto Christ. We don't understand that. We just don't. And that's part of the blessing of living in a country that God has, God has made so free. It's kind of coming to an end. So, I mean, th this type of application doesn't make sense, right? If, if, if you come to Christ as a child, there's, there's, there's perhaps very little uh, chance of you being put to death by your parents because of that. Although there could be, for outside community people, someone who says, well, I'm going to come to Christ, and now that's going to mean a total change in life, and now instead of going to brunch with my wife, I want to go to church. Well, it's enough that I prayed that prayer. I really don't have to change my life. Or it often may express itself for us in that we are too afraid to tell our relatives the truth about the gospel for fear that we might offend them. There have been several times... I've been in ministry almost 25 years, and there have been several times, I, I can count three or four in my head just now without even thinking about it, about family members who have asked me to share the gospel with, with their other family members. So another person comes and says, will you care, please take the gospel to these other family members of mine? And, and I take the gospel to them, and I express the gospel to them, and you know what happens? They get offended. And then the person who asked me to take the gospel gets offended. That's happened many, many times where they get mad at me because I express the gospel too strongly. It's happened in this church a couple of times. I'm really concerned about this person. I've been sharing the gospel with them. Would you? Okay. Maybe I'm just a hateful person. I, maybe I doubt that. I don't think that's true. But when the gospel comes to a person in reality, then they realize what's really being said 
And ho, 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 ho. Wait just a minute here. Because typically what has been expressed by the family member is what? The, 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 the knowledge, the faith part about it, the belief part about it. And then I come and I'm expressing what? The attitude. Let's go back to what I started. There's a faith, there's a, there's, a, there's a body of belief that must be acknowledged, but there's an attitude that must be expressed. So when I go share the gospel, I start with this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, I used Joe last week as a random name, and I didn't want to do it again, Joe. Uh, Frank. Uh, Frank's been telling me all about that. Yeah, I believe all that stuff. Oh, great. Did you also realize that now your life must completely change and Christ must be head above all? Whoa, ho, 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 ho. And then that person goes back to the first person and everybody's mad at me. Just like they were mad at our Lord. Just like they walked away from the Lord. I don't seek to make people mad at me. I don't like having people be mad at me. The gospel presented properly makes people mad. And if you are afraid to yourself give the gospel to a spouse or a cousin or a son or whoever it might be related to you in the passage, then you are preferring them above Christ. I know there's situations that we must be careful with. But we are guilty if family relationships become more important to us than Christ. We indulge and, I, and almost idolize our children. Afraid to perhaps discipline them or share with them the truths of the gospel. We just want to have, quote, good kids. Not kids that understand their sinful nature and their need to respond to Jesus just as our need is. Notice that Jesus, when he gave the great commandments, said, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as ourselves. Not, we are not to love others as him. See the difference? He's in a category all by himself. It, it's not like as a Christian you have, okay, this is my family life, this is my work life, and this is my Jesus life, right? This, this is Jesus, and he kind of is, no, Jesus is in a, a separate category. He is to be preferred above all things. All of our other loves must be secondary, and sometimes this may require a breaking of a family relationship in order to be true to Christ. This type of commitment is radical, isn't it? But Jesus isn't just trying to amass spectators. He's not trying to acquire a crowd. He is seeking to recruit disciples. And I will say, if you are unwilling to confront family, if you are unwilling to call out family, if you are unwilling to make a decision that goes against family, then you cannot be his disciple. That's simply what Christ says. One of the Puritans says this, Thomas Boston, no one can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is the dearest to him in the world. We can love our spouse, we can love our kids, we can love our families, but we must give our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. He will not take second place. Second, he is preeminent in our relationships, he is preeminent in our comforts. This is what he talks about in verse number 27 when he says, whoever does not bear up his cross, excuse me, bear his cross and come after me cannot be uh, the best, cannot be my disciple. 
Now, comforts might not be the best terminology to use here in talking about the bearing of our cross. But let's not lightly suggest that the bearing of our cross means we have a broken dishwasher or uh, some sort of uh, bad acne or other financial burden that we're dealing with, and we say things like, this is my cross to bear. This crowd that Jesus was addressing here would know exactly what he's talking about, even as they may have walked by crucified individuals in their society. This is simply the extension of hating our own life. Jesus says we must hate all of our relationships, that is, we must prefer Christ above all of our relationships, and we must even hate our own life because the person who attempts to save his own life, in other words, prefer his own life, will lose it. But the person who loses his life for Christ's sake will save it. So this is merely an extension of the end of verse 26. We hate our own life to the point that we don't even care if our life is preserved. Again, American Christianity has made us pudgy Christians because no one in America is, is dying for their faith in Christ by the thousands like they have in China, like they have in other countries around the world where they've hidden And throughout history, being faithful to the cause of Christ has caused them to lose their life. Jesus is saying to the crowd, if you are unwilling to physically suffer out of the wholehearted connection to Christ that is to be disrespected or disowned or disparaged or even killed, you cannot be my disciple. So don't bother praying the sinner's prayer if you are not saying, Christ is all, I don't care what happens to me, I don't care what happens to my family, to a certain degree, I prefer Christ above everything. And the worst that we face, the worst that we face, is we hand cards to people and say, would you like to come to my church? No, I don't want to come to your church. Oh, I'm very, very sorry. And we're so afraid to talk to strangers about our faith, because they might laugh at us, they might you know, mock us a little bit. What we are saying is, man, I've got these truths that I embrace. I believe them with all of my heart. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and by trusting him, I have, I have righteousness. But now I kind of want to do my own thing. Right? Notice that Jesus isn't even saying, like, you've you got to be committed in, like, minor ways. You're, you're committed to the death. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, so glorify, your, glorify God with your body, which is Christ. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless not I, nevertheless not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. American Christianity has afforded great peace for us, great peace for us in the past. I think it's probably unprecedented peace for Christians in this culture. And it makes it very easy to commit to Christ. And it has made it easy for the church to make it easy to commit to Christ. We have, we have boiled the gospel down to it's as easy as ABC, ask, believe, call. It's not as easy as ask, believe, call. And so many people, perhaps, because of the, even, even in the, the good motives of churches like that, are out there living their lives thinking they're saved. 
when if, the, when if the rubber met the road and there was any sort of punishment or penalty for being a Christian, they would hightail it. I mean, is there a person that you know that says, I'm a Christian and hasn't been in church in five years? You think that person is going to take a bullet for Christ? But why do we keep calling them Christians? It's ridiculous. We've got to stop doing that. Again, we stop assuming someone is a Christian because they said something or did something. What do Christians do? They give their lives for Christ. They are rightly related to him so that nothing else matters. And those people might even say, uh, you know, oh, I'd do anything. If, when the guillotines come, my neck's the first on the block, right? But they're never in Sunday school. They don't read the scriptures. They don't share the gospel. They don't come to church. They're not even in church. You think they're going to die for Christ? I'm not trying to be mean. Christ says, you can't be my disciple. But the American church says, you can if you prayed the prayer. We've got to stop doing that. Because we're, we're, we're not just being, we're not being kind when we're doing that. In fact, we are being the most unkind we can be. Because what we're doing is kind of, is kind of like crowning these people with Christianity and sending them to hell deceived. You think they're going to wake up in hell? Oh, I'm so glad Grandma never told me the truth about what really happened. I'm so glad my spouse or my child never, never really confronted me because now I'm in hell forever because I thought I was saved because I did something. Gives his own life. This cross signifies submission placed under authority. Are you willing to suffer indignities, harassment, and perhaps even physical punishment? If you are not, you can't be my disciple. Now let's take a little interlude here because Jesus does. He shared these two truths. He shares these two thoughts. He says you've got to hate family and hate yourself so much you're willing to die. But, but stop being willing to die. Start being willing to live for Christ. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're not living for Christ, you're certainly not going to die for him. So, so for us to say, well, I'm willing to die, well, just be willing to live for him. Come to Bible study. Start working in the bus ministry. Start calling on all these 30 kids. I mean, it's so, it's amazing to me. You know, we have about 30 people here, and on Wednesday night, we have close to 60. Who's visiting all these families? Pastor will do it. Get in the game, folks. Get in the game. It's, it's wonderful to serve Christ. True Christians who follow him, this is the most important thing. My walk with Christ, serving Christ, studying about Christ, working with others about Christ. Give up some of the other stuff. Because it, it's kind of demonstrating that you really don't know Christ. But I prayed the prayer. But I prayed the prayer. Look, Pastor wrote my Bible. In light of these truths, Jesus tells the crowd, you've got to really think about this. Think about I mean, if you're signing up to die, you better, you better think about it, right? This is, this is the point. This is the point about sharing the gospel. It's not just about going to heaven. It is living for him now. So he gives these two little parables within the story of people who need to consider. He talks about a man building a tower and a king going to war. Which of you desiring, this is uh, verse uh, 28, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him. This fellow could not fit, uh, began to build and could not finish. 
Now, this tower implies a major undertaking. This person isn't just building a shed. This tower is probably something that would be uh, placed in a vineyard or near a field to watch for thieves or watch for animals. So this is a, this is a huge, massive undertaking. It, you know, it would, it, would be like, it, would, it would be like our neighbors putting up you know, a, a second home on their property. Just, whoa, they're really, they're really going after something. They're not just, they're not just re-signing out. They're, they're taking a major undertaking. Let's see how this goes. And six months later, it's still unfinished. <laughs> Those dopes. That's what Jesus is saying. This, the way he says it, this man is, is in a way in the Greek where it's like this fellow, like, almost like mocking an individual. This guy started something and couldn't finish it. And uh, John Stott, I believe it was John Stott, wrote something like this. We can look around and see many half-built towers which are monuments of a lack of resolve to follow christ and those are not christians who are just struggling those are people who started on the way and realized i can't i can't do that or maybe can't i don't want to do that don't want to do that um this major project uh that would be started would then be mocked when it was unfinished and that's the key in the passage if you're going to come to christ you got to think can I make it across the finish? Am I willing to complete it? Don't come to Christ because of some emotional or relational letdown. Seen that through the years. Seen that recently. Something goes wrong in your life. Well, now I need Jesus. I need Jesus to come kind of, kind of rescue me out of here. Don't come to Christ because you're disappointed or discouraged. Come to Christ because he is the only way out of your sin debt. And by doing so, he redeems your life from the pit. And now your life is his. We should never manipulate a person into making a commitment to Christ without first saying, will you consider what this commitment means? This commitment means your life is over. Christ is first in all. Consider, deliberate, are you willing to take this action? The second interlude story is about the king who goes to war, which is very similar. It just is, is talking about issues that must be considered. The king, if he could avoid bloodshed, would he seek for peace? Of course he would. He would deliberate, hey, I got less than they do. If I go to war, all my guys are going to die. So I will think about this. Both of these stories are Jesus is saying to the crowd, don't just jump into this. Don't just jump into this. Realize what a commitment to Christ means. It means a lot more than you think. It is not just the praying of a prayer and relying on that for the rest of our lives. It is considering if I am willing to do what Christ commands before I commit to him. Embracing the facts is easy part. It's coming to him with the proper attitude that he's saying, this is what you've got to think about. Are you really willing to do this? I mean, why should we be willing to do this? It's, it's nonsensical for a person to say, yeah, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Now leave me alone for the rest of my life. Because that person really doesn't understand what Christ has done for them. He demands our unrivaled affection. He demands our unconditional surrender. The third thing he says we got to do if we want to be his disciple, is renounce our possessions. This is the third thing. And he, he kind of concludes this passage in uh, verse number 32. He says, any one of you who 
does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's be quick here. Renouncing means to bid farewell to or to place something in order, to put something in its rightful place so it will not take control of us. The key thought here is control. In fact, this same word is used in Mark 6.46, Acts 18.18, and 2 Corinthians 2.13 when it's used of a person who is traveling and it says, he took leave of them. Same word, renounce. I think it's the word renounce here in the the ESV. Uh, Is it, yeah, verse... Verse uh, 32, renounce all that you have. It's used in other places. It's translated take leave of. Like when Paul leaves a place in Acts 18, he says he took his leave of the brethren. It's, it's the idea of separating, bidding farewell to all of your things, sayonara things, I want Christ. Now, it doesn't mean we stand on the street as a beggar, but it means we put our possessions in the right order of things so they do not take control of us. Our priorities are right. They do not take us away from the fellowship of other believers. It does not take us away from the the true commitment that we have to Christ. So many Christians, Christ ranks like fifth or sixth on the list, right? If I don't have a soccer game, or if I don't have a karate class, or if I don't have a business meeting, then I'll fit Christ in. That is not biblical Christianity. To place in order is what the word renounce means. And I think all that he has is talking about more than just possessions. It's talking about anything that is connected to our life. Right? If a guy calls me and says something like, you know, I'd I'd really like to come uh, work on your, uh, we've talked about this a lot. You know, boy, let's say your sump pump's broken. I can come fix it. I I can be there Wednesday at 7 o'clock. At night, I say, no way, no way. I, I, I meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I can, I can, now you say, well, that's a sump pump. What about, what about, uh, you know, what about something else? Well, that's, that's too bad. Anything, this, this is the idea of, of the preeminence of Christ. Anything that would, and I'm not just talking about like a fellowship, but anything that would steal my devotion away from Christ has to be put in its place, has to be put away. Right? Who is in control here? Uh, the, the, uh, Nick stopped over the house yesterday, and our dog, of course, is struggling with that and goes crazy. So, so who's going to rule the, I mean, who's gonna rule the, the, the situation? Are we going to let the dog rule the situation? We put the dog in its place, in its proper place. We are going to be in control, not this dog. The same thing with Christ. We have let our possessions, we have let our commitments, we have let our activities, we have let our relationships, we have let our own comforts kind of take control. And what we do is we put Christ in his place and we take him out whenever we need him. Oh man, we have an emergency. Our family's falling apart. Where is Christ? Right? Oh, someone, someone passed away in the family. We need the church. We need the pastor. We need Christ. Well, meanwhile, he's been put away in his crate the whole time while you've been having your relationships and your activities and advancing your career, and now you want Christ to come in. That is not true discipleship. That is what the world thinks Christianity is. We are not that. We are followers of a Savior who has bought us with his blood and demands full allegiance. And if you're not willing to do that, then Jesus says it three times. You can't be my disciple. That sounds so mean. Well, you can take it up with the Lord. That's what the Lord says. 
okay? Take your leave from things. Say adios to your stuff, to your activities. Say yes to Christ. This is what he says in Titus 2, 11 to 14. You know that passage, right? Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly in us. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We just talked about it last week in the parable. The things that keep us away from Christ. Oxen, a field, right? Think about that. I cannot come, I have oxen. I cannot come, I have a field. I cannot come, I have a wife. These things keep us from Christ. You know, I can't come, I have ballet. I can't come, I have knitting. I can't come, I, right? This nonsense. I'm, I'm fixing up an old car in my spare time. I can't come. Right? All of these things take precedence over Christ. How does Jesus conclude this? He concludes it in, another, in similar strong fashion. This is why there are only 120 people when he left the earth. Because no one wanted this. No one wanted this. Jesus could not fill the auditoriums that these false preachers fill today. Verse number 34, salt is good. Maybe uh, doctors would disagree. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is a very simple way of putting this, but if salt is no longer salt, what good is it for? If salt salt loses its ability to preserve or its ability to flavor or its ability to, uh, to do what it's supposed to do, then what do we do? Throw it out. Can't restore it. What Jesus is saying is if salt is not salt, it is worthless and thrown out. And if a disciple is not this, he's just described what a disciple is. Okay? Disciple is not a person who said yes to certain facts, raised their hand, walked an aisle. A disciple is a person who says, my family, I love them, but Jesus comes first. My things, I appreciate them. My activities, I'm glad for them, but Christ comes first. My life, take it. I'm yours, Lord. That's what a disciple is. And if a disciple is not that, he is thrown out. Man, I hope that hits you the way it's supposed to hit you. That is a final picture of judgment. Goodbye, Jesus says. If you are not going to come to Jesus on his terms, you can't come. Man, I, I don't know if I'm getting that across, but I sure hope so. We live in a world where commitments to Christ are done so because of this cultural appropriateness or familial heritage, right? Our families have all done it. We're reminded what Jesus says. It is a call to 100% allegiance to give him first place above others, ourselves, our things, above everything. It demands a complete shift in authorities. Will there be moments when we fail? Of course. And then we repent and grieve over that. But if we have ears to hear, let's hear what Jesus has said. Father, I'm so burdened for people in this auditorium that I can see are disregarding this message even this morning. I've tried hard, Father, to share with urgency the need to give our lives to Christ. I don't know what to do except to trust you to bear fruit from what we hear today. Father, help us to assess ourselves, to realize the commitment to Christ is so great and, and, it's, and he is worthy of it. He's so worthy of our of our commitment. He's done so much for us, reached into our spiritual deadness and resurrected us and given us life and faith and hope and joy. How could we not want to do our alls now for you? Thank you for those in our church family who've 
grasp this and are doing their best to live it. And God, we do fail. We do, we do flounder sometimes. Help us to quickly repent and to continually do, as Colossians says, give you the preeminence in all things because you're worthy of that. Please work in the children's lives, work in the teens' lives, work in the adults' lives who have not given the full weight of their attention to this this morning. Someday, Father, someday when we are gathered around your throne, we will, we will recognize, I think, finally and fully the, this great truth. And sadly, there will be some, perhaps in our auditorium, who separated you from all of eternity will realize finally and fully that their moment was gone. They wasted it. They had the opportunity and they rejected it. So work in our hearts and lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.